everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Unfortunately, we have been off for the last couple of weeks. One was for a planned break, the other due to illness. I'm sure I don't need to tell y'all about the illnesses going around right now in this season, but glad to be back. Uh, Just so you know where we were, uh, the lesson we missed was actually the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, a great story from Luke 18. It's about humility. It's about our need for God's mercy. That capped our unit, which we discussed Solomon, which the kind of overarching uh, theme of that unit was we are in need of mercy. Okay, this idea that God uh, withholds a punishment that we deserve. So that's kind of what the Gospel Project had as that uh, that unit's kind of uh, theme, and that's why it ended with the Pharisee and the tax collector, because if you've been listening, you know we've not been talking about Luke. We've been talking in First Kings and about Solomon, David, uh, Saul a while back. Well, now we are moving into a new era of the people of Israel. Okay, we're moving into what we might call the divided kingdom period. So our last Solomon story was about how God promised him the kingdom was going to be taken away from his son, and that was as a result of Solomon's idolatry that came as a result of his marrying many foreign wives, and they drew his heart away from the true God toward their gods. Okay, so God told him that for the sake of David, he wasn't going to take away the kingdom from Solomon, but he was going to take it away from Solomon's son, at least partially. So 10 tribes which we are going to come to call the northern tribes, which we are going to call come to call Israel going forward, okay? Those went to a guy named Jeroboam, okay? Jabo is what I like to call him. And then Judah, the tribe of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, and to some extent Benjamin went to Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, even though their names are super similar, not actually related. I think I said in the last podcast, I learned that like a few years ago that they weren't actually related. When the names are that similar, you just kind of think, right? But we are going to come to know those as the southern tribes. And by those, I do mean Judah and Benjamin. And then that kingdom is going to be called Judah. So a little bit confusing there. We've got 10 northern tribes. Those are going to be called Israel. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, are going to be called Judah. Jerusalem is within that area. So we talked a little bit too about... um, what it looked like for Benjamin's participation in the nation of Judah was. Um, You can go back and listen to that one if you are curious. We just briefly touched on it. But anyways, that's basically how it's going to shape up. So from now on, when we're talking about Israel, we're talking not about the whole Israel, all 12 tribes. We are now talking about the northern kingdom, which was split and went to Jeroboam. And then when we refer to Judah, we might be referring to the tribe, but we also could be referring to the southern kingdom, which has Jerusalem in it, which is going to be the one that a lot of the uh, positive things are going to come out. That's where the line of David is going to continue. So Judah is going to take on a more prominent role for the rest of the history of God's covenant people until the church comes along uh, through then. Not that the people of Judah will be irrelevant when the church comes along, but at the same time, that's kind of the rest of the Old Testament as we get into the early New Testament. That's going to be when we talk about God's people, when we talk about the Jews, that's where that comes from, is from them being part of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so that's just a little a little uh, context to give you as we talk about these things, so it's not hopefully too confusing. I'll try to clarify if we're talking about a tribe of Judah, we're talking about the southern two tribes, which make up what now is the nation of Judah. 
But today, we are not going to be focusing on Judah. We are going to be focusing on those 10 tribes that were given to old Jeroboam. Okay, we're going to see what he does with his responsibility. I just want to remind you, God made a promise to Jeroboam in 1 Kings 11, and this is what it says. God told Jeroboam, And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So he makes this promise that if you are obedient to me, then I'm going to establish for you a house like David's. And the part I didn't include goes on to say that uh, the house of David is going to be punished, but not forever. Um, this is not to take over the promises made to David and his family, but rather an additional promise that would be made to the family of Jeroboam if he are, is to follow in the ways of David. Okay, so that's on the line here in Jeroboam's life. Um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother spoiling it. We'll you'll find out how spoiled it is here when we read our first verses. So we are actually in First Kings. Starting in chapter 12, we'll uh, move a little bit into chapter 13 as well. So in 1 Kings 12, starting in verse 25, it says this. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so we see the initial, uh, that we see initially this dichotomy between Israel and Judah, because he's referring to Rehoboam as king of Judah. So that's what we're talking about there, the southern kingdom, Judah, northern kingdom, Israel. Jeroboam is king of Israel, and he has God's backing. God is not, like, God is for him. God wants him, has made promises to him. And this was part of a punishment for Solomon and for Rehoboam, because if you remember, Rehoboam also kind of uh, made a mess of his opportunity that he had, because he listened to uh, his buddies, instead of listening to the uh, wiser, older men who had sat under his father as advisors, you know, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he ignored the guys that were spending all their time with him, and he start, he was listening to his frat buddies, and uh, he got himself in a lot of trouble by kind of threatening the people. That's what caused the split, by God's design, of course. So Jeroboam's in good shape here to lead a portion of God's chosen people. Remember, at this, we're not thinking the people of Judah are God's chosen, the people of Israel are not, or vice versa. These are all still God's people. Okay, so God wants them to continue to be led in worship of him. But Jeroboam feels very insecure in this new leadership that he has, and he's worried that the prescribed worship of God in Jerusalem, prescribed by God himself, He's afraid that if they worship the way that they're supposed to in the temple in Jerusalem, that it's going to lead people to want to go back to Rehoboam's leadership. So remember, the Old Covenant, which we is a big part of it, is the Mosaic Law. And as the temple was built, a lot of things came along with that as well. We think about also the Old Tabernacle as kind of the precursor to that. 
The Old Covenant was much more specific with where and how certain aspects of worship of God was to be conducted. Okay, so we live in this new covenant era. And one of the things that we recognize about the new covenant era is something that Jesus says in John 4 to the woman at the well. He, it's a time where we worship not in this centrally located place only, but our worship is primarily in spirit and in truth. Okay, he tells the woman that a time is coming and is now here in which people will not go to this mountain or that mountain, but they will worship in spirit and truth. That's the covenant under which we live. But at the old covenant, uh, they were supposed to go, especially for uh, major, major things. We even see this in Jesus' time, uh, like the Passover. Uh, everybody's going to Jerusalem. Okay, there's certain things that were only supposed to be done at the temple in Jerusalem. And that that's really just the very <laughs> beginning. It gets much worse than, oh, they're not going to Jerusalem. It gets way worse than that. But even baseline. That's why he is that's why he's thinking this way. They're going to go to Jerusalem like they're supposed to and he's worried that worshiping God in the temple is going to make them like Jeroboam less as their king. Which is a real real backwards way to view it, but that's where Jeroboam is. That's what he is thinking. So, instead, he takes counsel. Let's take a little let's take a little note in our in the back of our mind on that real quick um, before we come back to it later takes counsel and he makes two calves of gold, which of course we know is idolatry. He does the worst thing he could have possibly done in the midst of his anxiety, and that is to set up idols. No. Clearly, he has forgotten that he only has this kingdom because Solomon did this exact thing. That idol worship is what led... God to punish and discipline Solomon and take away his kingdom, or at least most of it. And so it's, uh, Jeroboam, what are you doing? He's clearly forgotten this. Also, it's golden calves. Most famous golden calf story, of course, is when Moses is up receiving uh, the old covenant from the Lord and Aaron is getting beset by the people. And they're like, we want to worship God. And he's like, well, let me... Let me smelt down your earrings and we'll make us a calf here. And he makes the golden calf and Moses comes down. That's when he breaks the tablets. He's upset. Okay. And that was a whole, whole thing, right? In Israel's history. And now he said, not one, but two golden calves. That's Jeroboam's solution. He clearly should have read up on his Exodus history. Um, if you're wondering why in both of these instances, which are separated by a few hundred years, uh, why, why it's always a, why it's a calf. Um, it was common in Canaanite worship, according to Dr. Paul House, who is the uh, commentary I've been uh, referencing for this study. Pretty, pretty common. And that's why it pops up again. It's not like people just like really loved cows, I guess, though maybe they did. But it, was, it wasn't just something that the people of Israel thought, oh, that sounds cool, maybe a cow. Uh, but it was common in some of the other Canaanite religions around. And so it's kind of like, but that doesn't make it better. That kind of just makes it worse, right? It adds insult to injury. Like, oh, not only are you making a false god, but you're also copying a nation that I expressly told you that you should not intermarry with them. You should not adopt their religion. You should worship the Lord your God only. So, but again, now let's go back to that little note I told you to take. So he takes counsel before setting up these two calves. This is another example of this bad company. I mentioned with Rehoboam, he had the same issue. He listened to his uh, contemporaries rather than 
uh, the older, wiser people. This is not an ageist sort of stance that I'm taking here, that old people always know better than younger people. But there's a couple of things. A, a lot of times older people, most of the time even probably, older people do know better sometimes than younger people. And again, these were guys that were with Solomon, the wisest man ever to live. And they were giving him really sound advice. Rehoboam and said, listens to his buddies. Uh, in a different way, I guess, uh, Solomon kind of had that problem, except for instead of advisors, it was uh, the many foreign wives that he had. So this bad company corrupting this pure worship of God is now becoming a, it's snowballing into a more than a theme. It's just like a generational sin that the people of Israel de are dealing with here. So he takes this counsel. Obviously, it's not good counsel unless he ignored the counsel and he instead made two calves. That I don't think is what we we're led to believe. It sounds like the counselors told him we should do this. And so that's what he does. He sets up two calves of gold and he says, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Like, man, he's not, he's not even been the king that long. As, and as if like going up to Jerusalem, some big chore. I mean, yeah, it was a long journey, but that's where the temple was. Anyways, unfortunately, Jeroboam's not going to start here. He's going to keep going and he's going to make it worse. Let's go down to verse 31, still in 1 Kings 12. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. Jabo, what are you doing? Okay, so now he's it's getting way worse. He's setting up temples, false temples on high places, and he's appointing priests that are not of the Levites, like huge no-nos. Then he's appointing feasts, okay, to to mirror the one that's going on in Jerusalem. And then he it sounds like he himself is offering sacrifices on these altars to these golden calves that he made. This this is an unmitigated disaster. This is this is about as insulting as you could get to true worship of Yahweh is what Jeroboam is doing. This could not this could hardly be worse. Okay, he's making fake temples. He's worshiping on the high places which they weren't supposed to do because that was highly associated with idol worship as if they're just associated with idol worship at this point. They're straight up doing idol worship. He's appointing priests not from the Levites, and then he is offering the sacrifices, if you remember way on back. Probably like the biggest like the biggest issue that Saul had, the first king of Israel. One of the biggest things that led to his removal from the throne was he was offering sacrifices as if he were the priest, which is not what the king or anyone else is supposed to do. So Jeroboam included not supposed to be doing that. Okay, so he's uh, he's building these temples. He's uh, appointing these priests to make his pseudo-religion more quote-unquote official. And then he's making mock feasts. He's making sacrifices himself. It's absolutely, it's absolutely insulting. He's not going to get away with it. So let's move down into chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. 
Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, and the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was also torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. The man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Ooh, man. Okay, so this unnamed prophet at this point, we don't know necessarily who this was. He comes from Judah by the word of the Lord, just as Jeroboam is right there at the altar defiling God's prescriptions for worship. And he prophesies against the altar, which of course is also a prophecy against just what all that's going on. Um, and it encompasses Jeroboam's guilt, certainly, since he's the one who built it. He prophesies, uh, he gives actually kind of like two prophecies. One is a long-term one. He says that there's going to be a king named Josiah who is going to uh, judge the priest at the altar and that they're going to be burned on that altar, and which is pretty crazy. So Josiah is a king who's going to come actually three centuries later. So this is one of the, actually one in the Old Testament, one of the longer term, like person to straight up human to straight up human prophecies that we see. Okay. So there's obviously plenty of things that point to Jesus. Um, and I'm not going to refer to him as a straight up human as he is fully God, fully man when he is on earth. Uh, but from a human talking about a human, this is a, this is one of the longest uh, of the prophecies that we see in the old Testament being about 300 years. So he gives that long-term one. He's like, this altar is going to be uh, made, made a mess of by this, ki- by this guy, Josiah. Short term, he prophesies the altar is going to be torn down. So I guess the pretty clear indication there is going to be torn down and then it's probably going to be repaired or built on maybe even several times. That was kind of a little bit of a, a theme uh, in some of the places. Is like some kings would, this mostly happened in Judah, pretty much only happened in Judah other than this. But sometimes they would, a good king would tear down the high places and then a, a bad king would rebuild the high places. So someone's going to come along and rebuild this altar. Uh, Jer- Jeroboam is none too happy when he hears this uh, proclamation against him, sticks out his hand, points, and says, seize him. And that hand that he used to point withers. Okay, becomes useless to him. It says he couldn't draw it back. So obviously we see here God's judgment on Jeroboam and his, we see that this is truly a man sent from God because God has intervened for him in that way. Okay, so then Jeroboam, of course, is very frightened by the fact that his hand has dried up. And this, I don't know if you noticed this when I read it the first time, entreat now the favor of the Lord, your God. That's like a typical, like whenever we're supposed to know, like a guy's not doing what he's supposed to. When they, when they talk to the person who is doing what they're supposed to, you're being the unnamed prophet. And they say, that's your God we're talking about. So that's what Jeroboam does. He says, could you please pray to the Lord, your God to heal the hand? And he does again, showing that God is with this prophet. So, uh, this is the beginning of the end for Jeroboam, though. 
Uh, he does not act in obedience in regards to God's general commands. He does not follow in the ways of uh, David as God had given him really the option to, as God had told him that if you follow in the ways of your father, David, I'm going to create for you equally, maybe or not equally, additionally, I mean, uh, a, a house that is as great alongside David's, but he does a very poor job. He does it very poorly. So this is also going to become a recurring theme in Israel. So that Northern kingdom None of the kings in the northern kingdom, which we call Israel at this point and going forward, none of them are going to follow God. None of the kings are going to be good kings that lead people in true worship of God. Okay, Judah, the southern kingdom, is going to have some. It's going to be a little bit more of a mixed bag. Northern kingdom, none. None of them. So this is going to be how the nation of Israel, how the new 10 northern tribes of Israel are going to continue. It's going to be idol worship. It's going to be punishment from God. Eventually, they're going to face exile, um, different from the uh, Babylonian exile. This one's going to be from the nation of Assyria that they're going to face. But nonetheless, the northern kingdom doesn't get any better from here. Okay, so I know that at this point, especially after Solomon and then Rehoboam and now Jeroboam, we're starting to get a little bit of a theme. And you might even say like a little, it almost seems a little redundant, a loyal listener of the Bible breakdown who happens to also have recently been doing an unrelated study on the area of Israel's monarchy had asked what, what are some good takeaways? Why, why do we spend so much time talking about these kings? It just kind of seems like a lot of it is the same story over and over again. They got some, they got some crazy hard to pronounce names, which that is true. Um, so what, why should we continue talking about the period of Israel's monarchy? And I think that is an excellent question. I have four reasons that I think we should do it. So here we go. First one, this may be, well, this is probably the most obvious. People are sinful. One thing I think that we are supposed to take from these stories of Israel's kings is the sinful nature, our predisposition towards sin, our predisposition to be disobedient. So when we see it in the nation of Israel, there's a lot of things that when we see the nation of Israel that we should recognize in our own selves, okay? Because it's very easy to think, nation of Israel, what are you doing? You've seen all these miracles of God. You've had the law. You were his chosen people. How do you keep falling away? How do you keep messing up? How do you keep turning to idols? And yet, the same would be exactly true for us as Christians today. We are his covenant people. We have not just the law. We have all of scripture. We have the Holy Spirit. All of us have seen God work in our lives. And yet, we turn toward our own forms of idolatry, right? I don't think any of you are worried uh, or are, are struggling with worshiping golden calves. If you are, feel free to reach out. We could get through that together. But we have plenty, plenty of idols, um, pleasure, comfort, control, um, pride, uh, money, uh, you know, fame. And when I say fame, just like to have the feeling of importance. There are a lot of things that we have that are idols in our lives. and they're even a little more sinister than golden calves because it can be easy to say, well, of course I want to be 
like experience pleasure. I want to eat good food and I like, I want to like enjoy life. Like that's not a bad thing. And that's true. It's not when it becomes an idol is when it is in the line between like, I'm, I'm enjoying what God's given and I'm making an idol out of this is a very fine one. We can find ourselves on the idolatry side of that without even noticing. And that goes for all of those things that I mentioned. So even more devious than some golden calves are idols that we have. We're, we're pretty clever and we can even talk ourselves into thinking they're, they're all good and what we should be doing. So first, yes, people are sinful. Number two, you know, I said people are sinful is probably the most obvious. It's not the most important one. I'm not putting these in level of importance, but this one's probably most important. God is patient and long suffering with his people. We do see that um, there's discipline, which is actually the third one. I'm just going to, the third takeaway is God does discipline his people out of love, but going back to being God, being patient, and long suffering with his people also, yes, there is discipline. That is part of this, but also what incredible long suffering God has for a people that constantly disobeyed him and put his name to shame by the actions that they took that did not take the gifts and the uh, the prescribed worship that he had given and instead tried to make up things for themselves. And for hundreds of years, they do this. And God is patient and long-suffering and shows grace and shows mercy. And ultimately, is also good when he shows judgment. But one thing I think we should see from the period of Israel's monarchy is God is patient and long-suffering. He's constantly sending prophets to warn the people, this is what's going to happen if we continue in this. This is what's going to happen if this idolatry continues. And the people ignore, and then he disciplines them, and they're okay for a second, and they go back. God shows incredible patience and long-suffering with the people of Israel. It's important for us to realize that if we indeed are sinful like the Israelites, then God is also showing that same patience and long-suffering with us. God does discipline his people, and that is out of love that we see. Just like a parent disciplining a child, it is a, is love, even if the child does not feel that it is loving, or even as a parent, it doesn't feel loving at the time. It feels hard. It feels difficult. feels maybe even harsh, but discipline is important because it teaches us the way that we should walk in. And finally, what we see from the period of Israel's monarchy in the frailty of these human kings, we see we need a true king. We need a true king one that is going to be in the line of David, a king that is going to be totally obedient, going to lead us in obedience, someone who we can model ourselves after that's going to lead us into the worship of God. And then, of course, we're talking about Jesus here, right? Not even those things, which are all true, but also through his death on the cross, now we have a full a fulfillment of this system of the sacrificial system in which our sins are not having, we don't have to take care of them every year by going to Jerusalem, but instead he was a once for all sacrifice. And that's not all. We also, through this true King, through Jesus obedience, his complete obedience to God, we also through faith in him received the Holy spirit, giving us God with us, indwelling us, leading us into obedience, leading us to where, God is guiding us, helping us remember what Jesus taught us, giving us the ability to not sin. Because without the Holy Spirit in us, we are always we are just we are just sinful beings. But with the Holy Spirit's work, that seal, that promise that we have in the Holy Spirit, 
the spirit is also allowing us to choose God because he has chosen us and he's provided for us. So all for all those reasons we study, it's, it is, it's basically a, uh, several books long cautionary tale. And there are, uh, each individual story too may have, you know, different, uh, lessons that we can learn as well. But some of these overarching things are huge. Like if we can recognize our own sin and we can recognize God's patience and long suffering with us, that we can recognize God's discipline as love. And then we can recognize the need for a true King that puts us right in the place that we should be in the story we skipped last week with the Pharisee and the tax collector to be in the place of the tax collector who said, have mercy on me, God, a sinner, not to be like a Pharisee who says, thank you that I'm not worse than I am. Thank you that I'm so awesome. That's what the Pharisee prays to God to be like the tax collector, to recognize our place. When we recognize our place, that should help us recognize God's place. And the more we recognize God's place, the more we recognize how worthy of our worship, of our obedience, of our love, of our trust. Yes.